Hi everyone, my name is Marlon and I'm the host of Educate Tomorrow Black. So this is a bit of a different episode uh, in Educate Tomorrow Black. Um, one of the things I wanted to give content warning for is that we talk about student death and some of the impacts that Yancey experienced around that, the ways in which that particular student's death was handled by the school and the sort of spectre of white supremacy. In addition to this, places and names I've tried to anonymize as much as possible, including the name of the student in question. Um, one, out of respect to the student and their family, but also that Yancey herself has been dutifully cared for in speaking about this conversation. Final thing to be aware of is that Yancey's views are her own, and what she says and how she expresses herself is not on behalf of any organizational person, but merely coming from her own experience. Hope you like it. Welcome back to another episode of Educating While Black. And today I'm with someone who is a champion, someone who champions everybody else, and someone who we always pop up in the most random places. Yancey's been a teacher for 10 years and came through the Teach First route like myself. Yancey is a language teacher, and I love that she's a black woman who teaches the kids a language that wasn't even one that is of her own mother tongue. And so like myself, learning a, a modern foreign language, as it was called, is something that is not going to be helped at home. You're going to have to figure that out by yourself. Aside from that, Yancey's also taken ventures outside of the classroom, but remained in education. So more recently, Yancey has been working in a new organization that is designed to put well-skilled teachers into alternative provision. Um, and Yancey's role in that has been quite pivotal in shaping the people who apply into the role. Yancey left the classroom in 2016 and is coming back into the classroom in 2020. And I really, really, really cannot wait to see where this conversation goes because I just know that there's a whole heap of stuff to honour. So over to you. I'm excited. Thank you, Ma. Yeah, Lord. Okay, well, it's a funny one because like, there's a career trajectory, all the things that I was doing full-time-ish, and then there's been all the activities on the side. So yeah, started um, the, my teaching career through Teach First, having done a modern foreign language and cultures um, degree in French, Spanish and Arabic. Spanish and Arabic, I picked them both up at university. Spent some time in the Dominican Republic, Damascus University, you know, doing the thing. No, just as you know. Do you know? Casual. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and my Teach First placement was in a large um, comprehensive in Wembley. After two years, I thought, oh, that was very embarrassing. I, at no point, bloomed into, you know, was he Goldberg into stack? It wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I don't know what I thought I was going to do, but my skills did not match my... (laughs) expectations of myself so the um, idea was just to crawl out through the back door um well, I had somebody who really championed me who's become a really good friend of mine um and she left and she moved to a starter academy up the road in Wembley again and she kept saying Yancey I see you here I see you here no 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 guess what yes joined that team became second in charge and felt like I was molding something shaping something particularly um, a Spanish pilot. It was an all through through school. And so it was the first opportunity I had to initiate primary school learning of languages. My goodness, how fun that is, how beautiful that is, how easy, I guess it is for children to accept. You know, if somebody sneezes and I say, bless you in Spanish, they're not questioning, what's that, but why did you say, no, that must mean bless you, let's go. Um, They're not questioning why we might transition from carpet to desk using a Spanish song. In fact, children in my year 10 class are telling me that they remember those songs. Anyway, so I did two years, managed two years. And meanwhile, I was doing uh, Teach First Masters or commonly known as not doing, deferring the Teach First Masters. So I did my first year, did the essays and then it became time for the second year, right? So let me do the dissertation. Oh, I'm not sure. Meanwhile, we're just innovating in the department, innovating, innovating, innovating. And I'm an all or nothing type person. That's probably going to come up a lot. And I found I was completely attached to the work I was doing in the classroom and did not know how to get my head around other things. Few events happened in that school like experience, bereavement, bereavement of one of my students, um, which was, I feel like it was a defining part of my career. And I decided, no, let me make that leap. So I took a full year out to pursue a master's in comparative and international education at the University of Oxford, um, where I went, where I lived. Yeah, and that was that was um, transformational, not because of what I learned in the course, um, but because of the outside experience. I was started then to put, to understand theory and language around some of the racialized experiences that I was having and didn't know how to articulate 
But what I found on to, in terms of the international part, that it was way too abstract. So from thinking about how is this child in my class going to make it from A to B, we were talking about these, you know, countries and continents and all of these things, these masses of children getting to their next step. And it was too abstract for me to fully engage with. So I came back to the classroom. I did some supply, which was also quite formative, turning up in the boys' school in South London for one day and escaping with your dignity intact is a skill I have you know uh, <laughs> um, and I managed it I did that for a couple of months before my old school called me back the second school I was in in Wembley I was there for um, another year then I went to France for two weeks and I participated in um, basically Teach for France um, first summer institute so that is them training their trainee teachers in a similar mold to Teach First pivotal in that in seeing what translated literally and also culturally and all those types of things and so there was some really interesting feedback about some of the techniques um and how basically i had to move from being sort of top down use this technique to actually what's useful to you what do you think where are the gaps how can we build in that space right. i went then and, and i worked with the my teacher training providers teach first so i came back home and i started in a role of um teacher coaching they were called uh, leadership development officers I did that for a year before I moved into explicit teacher training. So I was mentoring, that was assessment, that was monitoring in Barnet, and I started training teachers for the last year in a term. Um, yeah, I left Teach First and I um, did part-time teaching. So guess what? I went back to that second school in Wembley, all to do with that relationship where I had with that first mentor who championed me. And um, the two days I worked at The Difference, which puts high quality teachers where they are most needed at the cold phase where, you know, they need to be doing the brain surgery of teaching, making sure that the children who um, most need it and are least likely to get it, get access to high quality teaching aspiration opportunity. In lockdown, I interviewed for a full-time ITT lead role in a school, heading up the provision for all of the initial trainee teachers. So that is me going back into full-time teaching. First time since 2014. That introduction was everything. And this is, again, this is why I'm so excited to do this podcast, because you ask a Black person in education in passing about any of those things, and you might get a very two-dimensional appreciation of who this person is. But for what you've just said, there's a very intentional person behind the brand at this point that is your identity in education. Um, there have been intentional steps. There's been uncovering of oneself. There has been rooting up things that aren't serving you anymore and having an understanding of maybe who you are now a decade in the game is probably miles away from the person that you were when you first started shout out to, the, to your friend who and your mentor definitely a friend at this point more so than a mentor who has kept pulling you back into a role that is one familiar to a school that's familiar um i guess it must be really nice to have worked with those kids when they were in primary leave come back and it's like missus back and you know these kids have now got full facial hair and <laughs> <laughs> big people <laughs> um that must be really really nice you said there's been a journey and i wonder how much of your blackness has played a role in your journey from you know 2010 to 2020 um and it doesn't sound like it was something that um maybe was fully realized at the beginning but maybe there's conversations about ways of it coming or realizations looking back now that oh that was a moment or that was a choice point and yeah tell me more in terms of blackness again that has reflected a personal journey i've grown up in north london i was always one of five maybe four black people at any point so i was always a minority in the room. And I don't know that I actively constructed a black identity because by reflecting what I saw on the TV or what I saw in like predominantly black schools, I was never that. So it seemed like an opt-in, opt-out situation. Um, my undergraduate was at Durham University. So we had a Facebook group called 100 Black across the whole university. It got to 69 and we just started saying, okay, come through, just come on in. Um, at every point, I guess I was there to make people feel comfortable. Yeah, I'm black, but my surname is Cooper. Yeah, I'm black, but I speak like X, Y, and Z. There was always a, there was always a way to mitigate it. Teaching landed me in schools that I had been, or environments that had intimidated me when I was a teenager. Honestly, I'd get on a bus, and you know somebody might comment on my hair, or they might you know look at somebody the wrong way, and I was back in an environment where I was like, you know, 
five years ago, literally mm -hmm. six years ago, I was, I would be intimidated to be in that space and to re-engage with Britishness, blackness in the position of authority, um, in a position of trust and to be developing minds. That was a, that was a first step. I didn't understand what it was, but it was a first step getting me back involved in a, in a, in a classroom in literal spaces that were majority non-white. That was the first step meeting um, a group of friends that I did in Summer Institute. Um, we're lovingly referred to as LEAM, late evening ethnic meeting, because we always ended up being the last, you know, few to dinner and we'd sit there. I think definitely, you know, in terms of what you were saying, the way that I've survived this long is, is making a dance out of it. And, you know, they say uh, a change is as good as a rest. And I think there've been so many ways in which I've zoomed in and out, micro, macro, being in the classroom, theorizing about the classroom, being at teacher level. And I think that that has really enabled me to um, grow. That has enabled me to not just think that um, progression in the school system equals growth. It's allowed me to maintain or, or figure out what integrity looks like at each phase in my career because I've had to keep almost reinventing myself, reintroducing myself at different points in the educational world. The part that you speak about, I remember like my first term, I didn't really know how to pitch coming into a school space. It was like, do I need to go hyper strict? And I, I, there actually isn't even a comparison. It just was hyper strict because I've, I've always known that I'm black. I've always happy that I'm black, but I've also known that I'm gay. And the level of like black masculinity that was on display or that was prioritized or that was rewarded, I couldn't emulate it comfortably. It wasn't something that I felt like I could do and authentically. So then coming back into a classroom setting, being a black guy, knowing all these things about myself, I'm also just like, well, this is interesting because it's, I never felt, um, I never really was, I mean, I wasn't really bullied for a long term or a long time at school, but my differences were definitely talked about. So am I, am I constantly giving off signals and signifiers that I'm not black, even though I know that I'm black? But where I found myself in black spaces, there's never been another really for me to compare how black I am. Yeah. And I think I think to fast forward where that had landed us um, and particularly me now, it's the um, blackness is every single damn one of the things that we are. It is all, it is all of the things. And I think I think that has been the issue and that whole kind of my differences were talked about. Why do you talk like a white girl? Why is your hair long? Have you got this in you? You got that in you? Yeah. So my parents are West Indian, they're Guyanese. Um, and you know, they are well connected. Any Guyanese um, thinker or politician or writer or poet laureate in this country that springs to mind are connected to my parents. So I think for them, they could more easily inhabit that sense of mm -hmm. like, it's fine, it's okay, there's blackness at home, We've, I'm surrounded by professionals. But for me, I, I miss that sense of belonging. So what does that make me? Because I'm neither you nor them. And so the journey was how is it that what I am is already enough, black enough, you know? And, and so that was important. The other thing, and I don't know about you, is, is the youth when I entered the classroom. Yeah, okay, I'd done a full year undergrad and then another year out. I could have been three years out, but I was very close to the memory of how I felt to be a teenager in mostly black spaces, which was generally uncomfortable. So I had to, with every identity, did I want to be cool? How should yeah. I speak? Should I... All sorts of mess trying to figure out, and I think that is why it's it's all it's. I guess now I'm hearing it out loud. It's it's almost what saved me from being that first example that you talked about from kind of climbing that slippery pole up to seniority really quickly. Because actually, mm -hmm. without reflecting, had I acquired skills more quickly, had I been able to um, be a place where students listened to me very early on, I would have taken that understanding of myself, that assimilist understanding, and I would have, you know, I generally met success wherever I go. I was successful academically and all those things, and I would have used those skills and I would have climbed up quite quickly and I might have become that example. But because perhaps might the identity issues, using time, figuring out if I needed to be young, if I needed to be black if I needed to be this it meant that my progress in my first couple of years felt a bit more stunted what it allowed me to do was think about the whys think about the wherefores and start building I think that's mm -hmm. what it was I had to just kind of deconstruct and build from the ground up what I refer to as a teacher persona but Miss Cooper is very very heavily who I am now right so she has influenced me the need the things that she's needed to be in front of those children in order to be effective have positively influenced who I need to be in my personal life love it
So you, you were saying that that was one of the things about when you first entered into the space of teaching, you, you can think about the, the impact of blackness on that space, but then you were saying about others as well. Uh, so that that was one moment, my time in that first school and just and I guess those were the years of just wondering in myself, who am I and who I do and who more importantly, do I need to be in front of these children? And what I needed to be was something a bit closer to authentic, just bringing my knowledge and my excitement about what on earth we're doing forward. And that sense of safety, I got you and I see you to to my students. What happened to, uh, towards the end of my first year, though, was that um, my form group, I, I lost a child, basically a, a black girl who had special needs. She was um, also epileptic. She was part of a nurture group and we had a bond. That was my girl. She was cheeky. She wouldn't care. She'd be given teachers who I'm running scared from the wickedest side eye, whatever it was. She, you know, she didn't, she didn't say much, but what she said, she meant. And I remember um, one Thursday I came and I, I was trying to set up an activity with my form group, write down these reflections. And I didn't scaffold, I didn't chunk it as clear as I should have. So she came up to me at the end of the lesson and she just had her, she'd written her name and she'd drawn hearts and the rest of the sheet was empty. I missed, so I didn't understand what to do. I was like, let me explain it to you tomorrow. Let me break it. I didn't break it down properly. And I didn't see her the next day, but that happened, you know. And then I was told in a very weird way that she'd passed away. The words were, um, her neighbour called and we think she's passed away. And it was like, but do we know? So there were a lot of questions that I had and it proceeded to be handled in a way that despite my complete kind of deference and reverence when it came to authority, I could not help but see some things that I thought were just staggeringly and egregiously wrong and harmful about how that was handled. I went to a deputy head that I found incredibly intimidating. He was also our head of year the next Thursday. It was a Friday, so it was the next Thursday. And I said, nobody has asked me or my form how we are. So it's on me, the 26-year-old, to scramble to call every single parent in that. And these are things that I just did on a whim, right? Mm. Call every single parent in that class to rearrange the seat so the person that sat next to her wouldn't have to be faced with going up to that seat and having somebody something empty. It was me that had to build the scrapbook, um, that just had to think of these things unsupported. Um, and I remember when I said that to him, no one's asked me how I am. I reflect it must have been through discomfort, but basically what he, what, what he said is, you know, it's a school, it's business as usual. Are you not handling this as if it was something that was wrong with me? And so, and I really had to see that all through. I had to go through everything. I wrote an email to the head teacher. She came up to me the following Friday and I said, come and see my form. And she came up to me annoyed and she said, what do you think? And she picked a, a kid who was, um, you know, had a reputation. Do you, think, do you think he was upset? And I was like, actually, I asked him and he said it scared him, the fact that a child in his form had died. And she came and she said to him, you know, that she said to the form, I believe two things. No, actually three things are true of life. You're born, you die and you're judged. And so if you think you can behave how you want. And so it became, I mean, the best of all fire and brimstone sermons that she gave my class. And not all of you will be going to the funeral. You have to earn it. I just, it's just the weaponization of that moment while simultaneously just the lack of consideration of the life of that child. There was, a, there was an assembly for her year group that lasted seven minutes on the Monday morning, which announced her death and said, you know, she was vulnerable. We need to look after each other. And that was all that was said to go back to your lessons. And so in all of the ways that I couldn't perform, that I couldn't switch on, that I couldn't stop myself from crying in front of my next year nine class, that I couldn't, that I couldn't, that I couldn't not see the ways in which that was an insufficient response and the ways that I was able to step up, that started to lay a seed in me about something perhaps more systemic going on. Just because of how unconscionable, I guess it was, how extreme the reaction was, and you know, like reading um, now, Akala's words about just how nonsensical racism is and how you have to act out in ways to really bend against truth in order to perpetuate white supremacy. I want to reflect back something that you said at the start to now, where you said that you're all or nothing. And it's interesting that you had to be the all for the nothing that the school and the system and the structure was providing. So you had to be catching all of the balls, had to single-handedly be doing the whole work. And so even though you say that these things came to you on a whim, it's also, I would say, there's, there's cultural practices in that. So there's, there's a connectivity to a, a society, a community, a how is everybody doing? And it's, it shouldn't take any time out of my business as usual day to ask you how you're doing. And then you add the layer that these are all kids 
you know? Yeah. And so it's, it's very interesting even now, 2020, thinking about the conversations around how schools are going to go back after COVID. And there's this tension from those who are slightly louder versus those who don't know a different approach. Those who are louder are the business as usual folk. So these are the people who are like, you know, we don't want to have a lot of conversations around hearts and minds and how are you feeling when we come back into September? Why? Because we've lost ample learning time. We've lost uh, grades um, opportunities. We've lost all the things that we can use to measure uh, how good we are or how good individually I am because we've never measured how are you and are you good as a different word order of that same sentence. Um, And then on the other side, Mm. it's kind of speaking to the point that you then just made, which is if the first awakening is realizing that there is a link to these things and uh, white supremacy and whiteness being the construct that includes all those things such as we can't take our eye off the ball no matter what happens. It's all about the task. It's all about getting the products and the produce and the, the measurable things out there. Yeah, you can draw a link between, for example, Jeff Bezos making the most money globally in a day during a pandemic and still believing that his staff members are not allowed or entitled to certain um, things that are, you know, you can call them human rights as a big label, but it's like, can I go pee? No, great. So you can link that absolutely to the same mindset and structure that is saying the first thing that you did as a head teacher was to put doubt into how genuine students were being with their emotions. And at 14, you're 14. All you had to do was be personable. They were 12. It's interesting how it was guilty before innocence is given to your class as a bunch of students. Mm -hmm. You have to earn yourself to go to a funeral. But then we shut down days for state leaders that people question how good they actually were. And we all must observe this person or this thing, regardless of our personal affiliation to it. But for 12-year-old kids, it's, so it's decided by me, the judge, jury, and executioner, if you're allowed to go to something. So I, I, you know, it's definitely something to pause there and pull over. And I wanted to mirror back to you, you in that moment about your character in terms of what you said about all or nothing. And also speaking to the point you made about Carla, speaking to the point about white supremacy, these links are not tenuous or these links are not sort of like everything's about race because everything is about race. Even in the absence of understanding whiteness or being white, there's an attitude that exists with white supremacy. And that's one of them. Thank you for pausing there. It's made me think about this idea of being an abolitionist and the idea that that, that feels so radical. If we, if we apply it to the police now and that being the new call, right, the new sense of defund the police, we need less policing and that being so so radical and, and somebody making the comment that what, poli- what policing does doesn't exist in middle class well-to-do areas. We see the mistake, we, 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 we say, oh, that kid, you know, it's a bit wayward and we need to do this about it. And they are not criminalised for being as a wayward 17-year-old or a wayward this. And I think um, what always strikes me when we talk about, what, and why we talk about white supremacy, is it the reaction was not there because there are not systems in place to adequately deal with bereavement. The, that happened because they didn't use the system that existed. The reason why that was my reflection was because months later, um, as so happened to be one of the few white kids in the school, middle-class white kid, um, he um, he's had reoccurrent knee issues, basically. And I think he had been banned from playing basketball because of it. And he played basketball and he dislocated his knee in the playground at lunchtime. And I didn't know what was going on, but I saw an ambulance and I saw none other than the head teacher herself holding his bag and the deputy head who um, asked me if I wasn't dealing with death, cupping his head, something, I don't really know. But this child was prone on the floor and you had these senior adults around him attending to him as you really should. What did that mean? Well, we normally have lineup in the playground before period five. Because he was prone on the playground, it meant that we went to period five about half an hour later. We had an update the next Monday on his progress back and forth, how, how we must be feeling, how they must be feeling, et cetera, et cetera. And I just thought the amount of humanity and time afforded, the amount of disruption tolerated, because that child and that child's need were deemed as things that were relatable and real pain 
compared to um, we can only let I think there were six children go to Ria's funeral because year seven that's 12 year olds are having end of year exams um, we can't ask you how you were because it's business as usual the amount of things the amount of ways in which space was chipped away for time um, the next term when I when I led her memorial and then we had a ceremonial planting of the tree it was yes you 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 spoke at her funeral yes you organized the memorial but you can't plant the tree with her parents because you didn't ask for cover for period two in enough time computer says no and what we see time and time again is the people that make excuses for the computer saying no and the system not allowing and then the people seeing all the ways in which that system is perfectly flexible and adaptable and humane when responding now to your point about the return to school with corona you know, needing to get back in and let's get them back in, you know, get the year 10s in. Uh -huh. Private schools have not returned as far as I know. We can, you know, I can check, but as far as I know, all of the things that are in place um, in order to make, to keep private school children safe. Eton um, had said from the beginning, we're not opening up until September, so don't try it. Uh -huh. Yeah, we scrambled back and it's the same attitude as what you're saying, right, business as usual, get on with it. There's no space for trauma. There would be space for trauma. There are systems for trauma. Because guess what? It's, it's circular. If it doesn't come out now, it will come out again. And guess where it's going to come out? When a lot of these young people now become young adults and we can further demonize them and say that they are now a scourge on society. Mainstream schooling is the one dome that everyone sits within. And so if you're thinking about a leverage point where where can you have the highest return rate for a future generation of people, it would be school. So now you are deciding that in that dome, there is no space for trauma-related teaching or experiences. When all those people now leave that dome and just scattered across society, you're now finding the same trauma being repeated in domestic abuse, in substance abuse, in even just, you know, suicide rates, depression, all of those other things that people haven't had a chance to say how they are feeling. And I got scared when my classmate died or I got scared when this thing that I can't see, can't touch, don't know what it is, is wiping out a lot of people that I'm close to in XYZ. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I got PTSD after, you know, terrorist attack, after knife attack, after, you know, police not doing anything about either of those two things as much as police are doing things about people that look like me and stopping me and searching me for unnecessary reasons when I'm going about my business. But yeah, I'm going to bed hearing that a whole tower block is on fire and it's a small situation. And I wake up the following morning and I hear that the whole thing has gone up and a certain number of people have passed on. And it's like, I know that tower block. So it's like, it, it, it will come out again. It will have to come out again. And for me, it came out by me saying, you know what? It's been great London. It's been fantastic. I just need some time out right now. It's a damn shame is the point that I'm making. It's a damn shame. The other thing that just comes to mind is that I just feel like your school was hiding something. And what it was hiding, I think, was its own ass. It's, it's, it's its own shame about how it treated students that were not, main, not middle enough to be mainstream. So it feels like there's um, special educational needs that she has. And so we can't meet those. So we're going to exclude for those. So the narrative just somewhere over off screen somewhere so we don't have to really pay too much attention to it. Um, much like this, the student that you're talking about in your classroom where it's like, do you really think that he grieved? Like that's an appropriate question to ask of a 12 year old um, versus this one model kid who's probably in all the prospectuses, you know, if, if he's not supposed to be playing basketball, but yet he was on the playground playing basketball, are we culpable? So how can we make it seem that we are doing the most for this kid to ensure that we are not on the line for his parents coming back to us and saying that you are responsible. And it just speaks to me about the um, perceived power structures that there are with certain communities that for this young uh, student who has uh, disabilities, for this one kid who has assumed that his parental background is not one that has enough clout in power, we're not worried about the repercussions from them because what can they really do? Who are they really gonna mobilize? 
this white family over here, you know, who has a, a kid who has had a name or has had a possible reputation, we don't want to annoy them or anger them because the repercussions might be a bit more difficult. The language that they use to come at us might be a bit harder to pull ourselves out of that situation. And I make that example because your academy that you taught in is extremely similar to the academy that I taught in in Hackney, uh, which had another academy in Hackney, um, Mossbourne, which, you know, locally in Hackney, was always thought about being extremely draconian and hardline and which kids of Hackney were served and which kids of Hackney were left behind. And Hackney being a tiny little borough, tiny, 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 tiny little borough, there were some kids who we would bend the uniform policy for, the hair policy for, the detention policy for. The parents said, my kid is not doing a one-hour detention, get on with it. The school would say, okay, well, I'm, I'm very disappointed that that's the choice that you've made, but we have to release your, your child to you versus other parents who were never called to let them know that their kid was coming home late. And it's the same kid who's profiled for gangs on the way home. It's the same kid who's profiled for doing uh, unsavory activities. It's the same kid who we talk about having potential um, child protection concerns, but we're also adding to the child protection concerns. So it's just interesting how what is in micro is also macro and what's macro is also micro it's interesting thinking about the extent to which we rely on these perceptions in order to make the system make sense right so they kind of needed that to be true that she was small and she was insignificant in that she was peripheral and what happened was and that's why they attributed so few resources so the head teacher didn't come to her funeral and um, she was busy and she didn't come to the memorial because she was busy what the deputy head saw when he came to the funeral was a two-floor church packed and guests flowing out onto the road, um, screens projected into, uh, of the ceremony and a classy, not that, you know, and these are value-laden words, right? But um, to his understanding, a classy, well-organized, um, uh, event that was her funeral and I think that was that was so unexpected I mean I mean one of the first things was um, there was a suggestion that we quickly did a memorial ceremony do a hasty event the, you know the week after her funeral and coming back from the funeral mm -hmm. he made the point you know we need more time to do this so this means that you were shocked this means you were so invested in believing exactly what you said that she does not have therefore she is nothing and this child does have and, and therefore will get the attention so i just think in all of these ways these little beliefs and these little perceptions mm. play out in these very big ways and they are more often than not proved wrong but so what the system must remain right and this is what i'm saying that you have to make it has to be nonsensical then you have to act in a way that's so obviously wrong so that was that one. That was one thing that shaped. And that kind of sent me on my way, I guess, to leaving that school. I could not quite get over that. Even though I returned for the next September, even though I did the um, memorial, even though that deputy head's wife happened to come up to me and say something he never did, which was that, oh, I heard that your speech was really great and really moving at the funeral. That is not a message that I got from him. That was something I heard from his wife at a social event months on. I couldn't get over it. And that's when I did my master's. And what was happening at the time was um, Mike Brown, you know, hands up, don't shoot, who was shot in dubious circumstances in Missouri and um, Eric Garner in New Jersey. And we had African-Americans who had been versed in the language of activism um, and anti-racism since undergrad, coming to Oxford to do PhDs, having been activists on the ground, giving language to what I had experienced. So I didn't have the words, I didn't have the comparisons, I didn't have the, this is abolitionist, this is white supremacist and my experience of teach first going to black lives matter marches sit-ins teach in being in rooms with people that thought about the, the strings that were being pulled to explain the situation that i saw um made me feel think very differently like that was a transformational point personally and professionally that gave me a sense of responsibility and then through teach first i guess in terms of the next step of blackness we built the the um, bame network where we really built this thing talking about what exactly it meant so if moving from like seeing it, you know, assimilating, seeing something that felt uncomfortable, getting an explanation to then giving language and movement and network and time and space and developing resources around the issue of blackness, that kind of parallels now how I feel in my job and duties. It is unacceptable that 18 year olds should leave the system traumatized um, and criminalized because they had us. And so that we need to understand that as our failure because they had us when they were children. 
it is on us if a child leaves this system not we need to hasten it we need to move them along quicker it's on us to intervene and, and everything that is radical is so funny because it shouldn't be but that is exactly what we need to hear now if we thought we were doing a good job because we've had such a transformation story of education in london we needed to hear that message that, that it is not transformational until until you have done the work there I like the fact that you you really reference so much about the experience being brought to you. And so the switching of the lens to say, well, if a kid doesn't get what they need from school and the power structure is such that they don't have power, then on whose head is it? And even asking that question changes the, the thing of uh, no child left behind, because already there's debates about what is a child and who is a child, because you could argue is Rhea a child? Would Rhea be in that category of children left behind or no children being left behind or that mm -hmm. other kid? Is, is it acceptable to leave those ones behind? Versus mm -hmm. this one kid who we have to make sure we literally cradle his head and carry his bag to the line. And although there are literal things, they're also metaphorical for how do we literally yeah. carry some people yeah. over the line? We're doing the work for them versus other people where it's just like, I would love to help you, but my hands are busy with his bag right now. I'd also love to attend to you, but I'm carrying his head. So if you could just bring yourself to the line, then that'd be great. But I, I really need yeah. to concentrate over here. But yes, meritocracy, yet it's equal, yet it's all these things. Um, and look what language does to help out that that system. You know, it's the same thing where, where it's now again radical to say, no, we're not we're not talking about slaves anymore, we're talking about enslaved people. It's the same thing. We're not talking about criminals, we're talking about criminalized, minoritized, neglected. Somebody did that. And I think it's been that's been part of the journey, understanding that there are actors, as you're saying, at every part of this journey that are directing the fates this way or not, withdrawing the hand of help, giving it to others, pushing up, taking time, explaining rationally and contextualizing with some children's experience because they can relate to it and not others um, and I think the movement in my career has been I need to mm -hmm. go down relate to these children at with great urgency to um, to be an actor there absolutely absolutely um, so you have definitely given formidable like formative experiences and lessons that you've learned from and I I even being your friend for so long, I am still getting new appreciations of you from having had this conversation with you. Same boy, same. And you know, again, the fact that these are not necessarily the conversations that you would sit down and have with another black educator. These are the conversations that, you know, you might put in your WhatsApp group with like-minded people, but you never know if this is a, a safe enough or brave enough or closed enough space where you can just say these things without repercussion. So this is the one that is also maybe something that comes up in a WhatsApp group and doesn't come up in, um, in main schools. But I'd love to hear about something that um, allowed you to realize that, you know what, it's okay to almost fail. It's okay to fail, <laughs> to be honest, if I did. Um, and kind of what it taught you about yourself. Yeah, and I've been thinking about that one a lot because as you as you mentioned, we used to attend lots of cock-up clubs um, as trainee teachers where an often very charismatic teacher would have that that thing, that anecdote, that moment. And often I'd go away from those going, <laughs> I would never do that. I guess I can identify two themes of cock-up. One, all the times I didn't say anything when something made me uncomfortable. Um, this deputy head, I went into a room um, just before we had a parent-child meeting, I said, is there anything I need to know about this parent and child? Well, I know the, I know the child, but about this dynamic. And he said, ah, yeah, it's just a typical fucking Somali family. And I heard what you heard. I heard that. And the first 10 of the 100 thoughts was, um, how do I accommodate? How do I keep safe? How do I get out of here and coming much later maybe thought one was that was you know that made my stomach turn and that was wrong but yeah thought two was um everything but how do I even stop and reflect that how do I even how do why don't I pause and give that space and there have been a couple of times when I just think you know silence is violence silence is complicity and I know you know there's been an extent to which you know you're trying to protect yourself in these situations and where I started to address things it would still take a long time it might become in the form of an email after followed by a meeting but I do wonder because again it's not an abstract thing 
him feeling that way about that child led to that child eventually leaving the school. These are not victimless crimes. No. I, 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 I often think about ways in which I protected myself um, in a way that has meant somebody's had to lose out because, you know, if I, if I said something, if I didn't say, you know, what would have happened? I've been in like near miss conversations where I have then, you know, a few years later taken it to the next point and I've written the letter and I've said this made me feel uncomfortable. And I've been in a meeting where then, then, you know, again, the power dynamics, some shift was made where I'd concede at the last minute. Whether it's a cock up or a near miss, I think they were all fundamental. I had to start at point A to move along to maybe point D where I am now, understanding that, you know, point Y is the, is the goal. But I think... We need to, I, I think my support to other black people um, has to include how to make those moments safe and as integral as they need to be and to protect the, the people who are more vulnerable, made more vulnerable by that, by that situation. An appraisal of, okay, I'm, I'm vulnerable to this extent if I make a call and that child is vulnerable to a far greater extent if I don't. I think the other theme is similarly, I guess, um, this idea of aligning your actions to your intentions if it is that um, I've thought and I've conceived of the idea of of being an abolitionist being um, anti-colonial and all of those things when again in the same vein have I have I prioritized my need or have I flipped back to a sense of um, as I said what I did in France starting on the wrong foot when have I gone for convenience over liberation and this again, this isn't for somebody to say, oh, but it's too much to ask, you're only human. No, 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 but you also, like, I can make my actions align with what I think is the right thing to do. I can force that on myself. So it's to do with service and it's to do with that kind of alignment. So I think there are, you know, there are ways in which, you know, I reflect and, you know, either a child has got the raw end of the deal because I haven't advocated for them or I myself have stood in a space and I have, I've increased, I've increased their pain by acting in a way that serves me and not them. It's just important to say, because those are also the things, you don't say that to people in the staff from around you because it affects your career. You don't say it to your friends necessarily because you're supposed to be a person with integrity. So it's not, it's not a pithy and it's not that funny. You know, this cock up, it's kind of, it's kind of existential. But I think it's the right question to ask. And I always talk about, you know, movements, uh, the BLM movement and all these things. If it doesn't abolish the police, it's posed the right question. And my hope is that my cock-ups have posed the right question about my trajectory as a teacher. So there's a couple of things I want to reflect back to you. Part one, and this is a personal belief, self-care can only come after self-preservation. You can't care for something unless you kept it alive. Mm. So I can't in every situation, you know, burn incense after I've had a detrimental effect or a detrimental experience in a school setting that has made me uh, psycho psychologically unsafe about my employment status or the place of work that I go into or the relationships that I have with these people. No amount of bath bombs, burning incense, <laughs> arms, meditation. That is, I'm, I'm not keeping my essence preserved and so for every choice that you've made where this is not the right call or the right place to have that conversation there is also a thank to yourself for extending your future self by not burning up in that moment where it's not clear what the next move would have been that you mm -hmm. could have gotten yourself out of that situation had you made that decision and so you know I, I can't say that you did anything that anyone else wouldn't have done in that moment. But here's what I also want to reflect back. And for anyone who is not Black listening to this, this is where that conversation about why so many Black people are questioning a lot of white allies' allyship is because that reflection of action is the part that's often missing. Because for what you said, it doesn't tell a pretty story. Actually, this was messy. This was horrible. This was something that um, I actually don't like myself for having thought about myself in that way. And it's, it's a problem, um, but it's not a problem. And I actually got to push back on that part where you said that you don't tell your friends this because you're supposed to be integral. Like telling your friends about these things is part of the integrity. You might not tell all your friends because not all your friends are friends for that particular thing. But with the friends that you have accountability with, that is part of the conversation. Like 
when we say come collect your friends as a phrase, <laughs> kind of what we mean. <laughs> like you need to tell them the things that I'm not in a position to tell them. And much like with this friendship group that you're saying, like there's yeah. things that just like, yeah, that, mm, yeah even those noises lets me know that okay there's more thinking to be done here or there's more work to be done here so i just really want to highlight that for a lot of the specifically white people who are doing the allyship piece and maybe even listening to this podcast as part of their allyship piece the reflection that yancey just gave is the reflection that a lot of people need to really be having with themselves so thank you absolutely thank you thank you and I think you know I mentioned I mentioned you I mentioned this Leem um in terms of the development you don't start here and they are people that I can tell this stuff to and feel as kind of safe as you have made that and feel as heard and feel okay so you 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 pulled out that that chest move rather than this one mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. um and that is really important, again, to that, the, the, the sustenance, the, the preservation of self and career, again, the 10 years thing, talking about the change being as good as the rest, also that ability to reflect um, and, and continue the progress of that alignment of, of action and intention. Um, you can't rest, you know, if this is the work that we are demanding of ourselves and others it has to be that we we cannot rest and we have to do these evaluations this is what i do with my trainee teachers over masters that aren't as important honestly so let's let's get into that um so you and i both have a uh a shared strand we've both been teacher trainers and i've loved that job i've i really enjoy being a teacher trainer again when i think about where it's going to have the biggest impact it's something that is truly exciting clearly my racial identity played a role it is not divorceable from the role of being a teacher trainer it played a role in people's eyebrows being raised because history trainers do not come in my packaging all the time there's a there's a brand there's a standard mold i was not it so there's questions potentially about the credibility and the validity of what i'm going to be training them yeah and then likewise on the other end when you talk about representation matters and being what you see like as someone who also teaches a obscure subject like languages where we don't often see black people i'd love to know what it means for you to take up space as a black woman as a black educator in teaching languages in training other people to teach languages in training other people to teach i mean that reflection itself i just had to i just had to absorb you know at the end of yoga you just have to lie down and absorb it and i feel like that's where you took me you stretched me in that what's really interesting again was the timing of that you know from where i was where i was feeling things to where i am now where i'm where i'm expressing things uh, to do with race um my teacher training career very quickly became um inextricably linked with my work in racial equality um, and anti-racism um so i i guess yeah there's an identity thing people look at you you're young you're black you're a londoner you're you're just everything you don't expect um a french teacher to be I I remember being in a school, leading a session in a school and a mother came in and needed to speak to somebody, but she didn't speak English. And I was translating for her from from French to the receptionist. And again, it's one of the many moments, you know, where you look around and eyebrows are raised. I think what has been really useful has been the grounding in coaching first, has been the ability to reflect back teachers mindsets has been my thing of understanding that training teachers will have one of two barriers um it might be a skill thing they don't know how to do the thing yet um or it might be a mindset thing and i think more and more i have trained myself to be kind of dexterous in understanding which one it is that i'm dealing with but i always find you know doing that it's been quite disarming um for trainees that would otherwise because at least it allows it allows us to get to the barrier first what is also useful is the little things, the mindset gaps that I'm seeing, then I can take back and I can add that to my anti-racism work and my training and saying, okay, now that, now that is a barrier that is reoccurring, or I can reflect, did you hear that? Okay, so that child can't, or that child's not able to, that child always, that's interesting. So, it, you know, it, it's, a, it's an interesting one in that I was, the wheels were in motion and we started to act on my blackness. 
there's been a couple, there's been one time where I've intervened and I've said, you know, that a decision regarding one of my trainee teachers may be uncomfortable for reasons related to race. There have been letters that I've written to head teachers because of, you know, their interactions with me um, as a black person and me having to kind of pull that up. So this is what I'm saying about the journey, like me slowly articulating mm-hmm. and using my kind of space as a, you know, as a kind of a freelancer in that school because they don't employ me to see what I can do there. But I think this, that has been like the biggest wow of my career. And, you know, you very, you very quickly realise that the practice of teaching is a very human, essentially human experience, and it is governed by structure. Um, And if you can get in early, you can get teachers critical of the structure if you've done a good enough job, and you can get them skilled very incrementally to be a good person in the room for Mm. those children. So, you know, by and large, I found it kind of a very relatable experience. I found that it has uniquely like that um, it's a great leveler to um, people uh, embarking on any teacher training program. It's uniquely challenging to each person. And I have found that I can add value as a black woman who teaches MFL just unashamedly, like unique value in the ways that I've described. That you're Caribbean and knowing that like, unless you're from the French Caribbean islands or from a Spanish Caribbean island, you would have had to have learned this language just like everybody else that, that speaks English, it makes it attainable. It makes it relatable. Like I'm even, you know, as a kid, I might be wanting to ask you questions about where do you use it then? Do you go traveling? And so a whole other conversation opens up about black people travel. Like we do leave London, we do leave the UK. And I think that's vital for black kids to see in the classroom and also for black adults to see too, because it's not just this all day, every day, small worldview that you have of us as black people and what we get up to, what we do. I mean, every time I've rejoined that school, I do a little, I kind of do a little first few slides, nice and interactive for them. I can do it in the target language, French or Spanish, and, and it gets a little bit about me. And sometimes it's two truths and a lie or whatever it is. But always the conclusion is, do you hear my accent? I am from here. How did I learn this? I sat exactly where you were. Where do I use it? And, you know, you sh- I show them the countries that I've traveled to, the co- like that I've been invited to, that, that, that they paid me to go to experiences that I've had the way that I've been reflected on my own identity and it is I remember just the kid in my in my Spanish in my French class was like yes how does it feel to travel I mean but how does it feel how does it and that idea of me keep on going back but this you were hearing you were here when I was in the year 13 you, you say that you traveled and I think they've got in their mind that I just travel I think the one kid was like oh I know why you come back because you need the money to travel again I was like okay Kind of, (laughs) (laughs) but yeah, I think, I think it has, and this is the thing, it's these, it's these really, really small confines that this, this system would have us exist in that, you know, our very existence challenges. And then you go further and you say, it's not the existence alone, it's what you do with it, right? You mm. can't just, you can't just be there taking up space. Yes, I'm a black modern language teacher, mm. but the fact is I need to, but I am, thinking about how to decolonize that for us and thinking about how to make it accessible and enjoyable, how to relate it to things, how to teach through it, how to reflect what, you know, French isn't this kind of Parisian, white Parisian uh, luxury. It is the language of immigrants. It's the language of ex-colonies. It's the language of music and and film and and history and all of these things. The language of France, I know, I mean, like, come on. Yeah. So I think, you know, it is is something special about our subject that allows them. I remember uh, in my first year of teaching, I taught a bit of RE and I was always frustrated that in RE, the children could express themselves, they could express their opinions and bring their experiences to in languages that felt that, you know, you repeat the word, you got it wrong, you need to repeat it again. But actually, what does it allow them to do? It allows them to build language from word, individual words in the ways that they, they, they're not, they don't have the space to in English. It allows them to repeat, to find rhythm, to, find, to make links, to link, to, to embrace the fact that this is actually, a lot of my kids, this is their third, fourth, fifth language because they're already coming here with those skills. It's an opportunity for, you know, that thing going around on Twitter, what is one thing that rich people are praised for that poor people aren't having a second language? Well, this is your moment to say, look at you, look at you already bilingual, look at you already trilingual, look at the skill set you have. So what a wonder. In the ecosystem that exists with how we do the work of being black people, that could be from the end of like an intra-group conversation where it's for Blacks, by Blacks, only concerned with 
to also having an appreciation of sometimes we have to work intergroup mm -hmm. and thinking about the things that other people who are not black needs to have appreciation of with black people well that's within the system of doing work uh, to upend anti-black yeah. racism so yeah like I, i'd love to hear more about how you see yourself uh, in that and potentially what other people might take from that too yeah it's not it's definitely um not a static thing i think for me i you know if you've learned nothing else from this podcast that I can't keep still and I think in terms of you know where I am now I definitely started with the intergroup conversation getting buy-in for the for the anti-racist ideas was something that uh getting validation and approval I think it's something that happens with this system yeah so I started there where I often do and I think again where my journeys often are like how can this be acceptable palatable uh brilliant impressive actually how can I make anti-racism impressive and um, I learned that you know in the, in the specific context of the organization I was working with people can be very impressed by your ideas people can be convinced but they will act um, within their levels of comfort and that is absolutely never going to be enough <laughs> absolutely never um, so I moved slowly uh, frustratedly into uh what's the intra group conversation what's this what's the strengthening what's the aligning around a vision that we need what are what are the what's the self-care and self-preservation that we have to do and i've kind of remained there so in this in this recent um blm movement um coming from george floyd i know that you and i've kind of gone in different directions the, there were you know i've basically had consult consultation with with um, CEO of previous organizations about this stuff. And I've left feeling bitterly disappointed that it wasn't carried on, that there's been, that I keep seeing what I've been referring to as a weaponized helplessness, um, particularly coming from white people. Mm. I just don't know what to do, but it's like, you, but you know how to write a strategy, you know how to, you know, get billions of pounds or millions of pounds of grants. You, you're very, very, very highly skilled. And this is what I'm saying about, you know, the system, all of these systems are flexible enough to not need policing and to provide support and to hold heads up and to restructure and to analyze and to give political statements to do everything it needs to do and my frustration is um abilities are lost and these weaknesses are manufactured just at the point where we need um, a little bit of strength and coherence so i have found myself an interesting place right now actually i've very much withdrawn into a space of okay what do i need for myself or how can i strengthen myself how can i say no to things what are going to be my little acts of um resistance I think that's what I'm doing. I'm doing a little bit of resisting on a personal level right now until I'm more convinced of, I guess, the high, the highest leverage action. Because what I'm not going to do is a lot of slog for free that depletes my energy um, and doesn't scratch the surface. Absolutely, yes. It's not dissension. It's not absent from post. It's not failure to your fellow black people. It is literally, as going back to it, self-care cannot come before self-preservation. It's just really important that that is a message that people hear because you can't burn up yourself for other people. I think it's important that people recognize that they need to take time for themselves, but they need to still be in it at, you know, at whatever level or speed that they're able to. Absolutely. So that brings me on to your reflection for others. And if there's anything that you feel is pertinent for other people to know. Yeah, and it's, 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 a, good, it's a good question because my answer is so personal that it, it therefore is probably applicable. I have been sustained by um, indulging all of the things that have interested me. So I do say yes um, uh, to being part of charities that I believe in. I do say yes to speaking in places, to stepping up. I say, I say yes to things that interest me, that motivate me, that excite me. And in all of those things, I found ways to grow my practice, essentially. I found ways to be closer to stakeholders. I found ways to be accountable in different ways. And I found them to be refreshing and energizing to me. I could not have just done my role in a linear way and climbed up and be 
whole, be refreshed and energized and have the space to act with integrity or have a sense of what my ideology is if I wasn't doing lots of things, or if I wasn't saying yes, if I wasn't taking risks. So I think it's important to, if you can, obviously, I mean, my context, I am at liberty to do things like that. So I think there is something in just diversifying your experience experiences. And, of, and that does include being halfway across the world, if you were, as, as often as you can, basically. Um, it's just the things that, that shake you up and force you to articulate who you are. And the other thing is your people. Um, I have friends who will check my applications, who ask me how I'm doing, who understand when I'm being evasive. This, this year has been so powerful and pivotal because I had a couple of friends who started a WhatsApp group and called me in and said, hey, you need to leave your job soon. Here are some job opportunities. You saw me the night that I was supposed to do an application. I sent you guys a video of me doing the crow, the yoga pose, and you were like, ha, ha, that's really, where is your application? So you need truth tellers in your life. You need um, to not resist your network expanding. You're very thin right now. Right. Like, that's my wealth. That is my wealth. My wealth are the people around me who see me and will um, call me in. So, that has been amazing. That's been everything. I cannot wait for people to hear what you have to say. I cannot wait for people to, to see themselves back in what you said. And that was like a nice meal. I feel very satisfied, like I could go to sleep now. <laughs> Thanks fam. Can we go again?